running, clean up, clean your room, okay, Olivia, no climbing on the furniture, make your bed, Ezra Derek. what's that, don't yell, okay, all right, Grant, what was it, feed the animals, okay. Wow, lots of rules in here. Yes. No screaming. That's right. Is ever like, do you ever have the rule, don't beat up your brother or sister? Is that any rule in any of these houses? There's lots of rules. Kids, do you, a lot of hands go up over here over that one. It's a very important rule. Now, kids, do you like rules? Do you like rules? No. Now, let me ask you a question. What would it be like if all those rules were taken away? <clears throat> what if you got home today and your parents were like, you know what? Don't worry about any of that stuff. You can go to bed whenever you want. You can watch whatever you want to watch on TV. Don't worry about brushing your teeth. Don't worry about eating your food. Just eat candy. Whatever you want to do, it's all up to you. No more rules. Would that be good, kids? <laughs> They're like, Yes. Unfortunately, you would have to live through that to know it would not be good. You would destroy yourself. Unfortunately, you only realize that whenever you become an adult. The rules from your parents are good for you. They're a blessing. But we don't like rules. And here's the secret, kids. You know, all of us adults, even your parents, we are under rules. Maybe not the same way. We don't have a mom or a dad telling us what to do, but there's plenty of rules that we must conform to and live under. And here's the secret. We don't like rules either. Rules are hard. We don't like to be under them. I think whenever we come to our faith, whenever we come to Christianity, I think a very important question for us becomes, what now is the place of rules and law? What now is the place of all of the commands in the Bible for us? It's a very important question. I think one that, we're, that is hard to get real clarity on. You see, there's two errors to take whenever you become a follower of Jesus. The first error is to believe that, that in order to be saved, you must obey and keep all the commandments. In other words, we tend to look at the rules and look at the law as a means to be saved, a means to be accepted, but the Scripture over and over and over says that is never the case. It can never be the case because you can never be good enough. But it's possible to also follow, fall into the opposite error, and that is to think we're saved by grace, we're fully accepted by the work of Christ, so therefore the law doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what I do. You're saved, you're accepted, so you should just do whatever you want to do. You ever tried that? Most of our lives are bouncing back and forth to each of these extremes. But you see, neither is the gospel. Neither is what we're actually called to in the true role of the law. And that's what we'll see today in our sermon as we look at the Ten Commandments together. Now, before we jump in and look at the commandments here, it's helpful to understand the context of what we're seeing here. God doesn't just go and say, here's some rules for you. Keep those. It is in the context of a story. See, we've been moving through the book of Exodus, right? 
And the book of Exodus is a story. It's an ongoing story. What we've been trying to do in our sermon series is kind of skip a rock through Exodus and to kind of get what's happening in the overall story. And if you remember where we've been so far, at the beginning of Exodus, God's people were in slavery in Egypt, in bondage. God comes and rescues His people out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb, through the parting of the sea, and they pass through, kind of like baptism, and become His people. And then He leads them directly into the wilderness, a place of struggle and hardship, a place of, uh, a place of, uh, of testing and breaking them down and, and exposing what's in their hearts in order to prepare them to enter into covenant with Himself. That's where we got last week as they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, And God comes down upon the mountain. And what's happening here in this scene is that God is entering covenant with His people. We talked last week about that concept of covenant, one of the most used words in the entire Bible. It's a huge concept in the Bible. And essentially, a covenant is a relationship, a special relationship, that two people enter into, and it's sealed by a promise, by vow. So it's different than just ordinary casual relationships and that you don't come and go. In a covenant, you come and both parties say, I promise myself to you forever. It's bound by promise. It's sealed. Okay? The most common example we have of a covenant is marriage. It's exactly what happens in marriage. So as we look at this scene at Mount Sinai, right here in the middle of Exodus, what God is doing is He's marrying His people. He's entering into covenant with them. And how astonishing that the creator of the universe binds himself in relationship to his people. He seals himself. He makes promises that holds him into the relationship. But also we see the covenant relationship with God is two ways, just like every relationship. And so the Israelites make vows too. They make promises too. God comes and says, you will be my treasured possession." An amazing promise for us. You'll be my treasure. I give you intimacy with myself. And then the Ten Commandments are like the vows for Israel. It's God saying, here is how you're to live in this relationship with me. Here's how you're to express your loyalty. And as Moses reads the Ten Commandments, the Israelites all say together, we will do everything that the Lord has said. So eager. Their hearts are so eager and ready. But we see that there's a problem even with their promises. But that is the context and the picture here. So God comes and gives the Ten Commandments as a summary of His law to His people to show them how to live in relationship with Himself. That's what's happening here. This is a covenant relationship here. Now, one of the most important things to understand is what the law is not. It's very crucial as we come here to the Ten Commandments. And what the law is not is it is not a system of salvation, and it never was. It's very uh, common or easy for us to think that in the Old Testament, God's people were saved through their works. They were saved through the law. They were saved through earning their way into heaven. And in the New Testament, we're saved by grace, and the law no longer applies. It doesn't matter because we're saved by grace. And so it's very common to pit those two against one another. And even in the extreme, to see it as two completely different gods. Like the Old Testament God was cranky and angry and and very quick to get upset, but in the New Testament, he's more like a papaw. He's more chill, Prozac. Don't worry, 
Just be happy, right? This is not the God of the Bible. The same God in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. One of the things that um, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is he says, don't get the wrong idea here. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. In fact, I tell you the truth, not the least little jot and tittle, which was like a, a period or a comma or apostrophe, not the least little part of the law will pass away until everything has been fulfilled. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes to raise the law up to its proper level. He takes it beyond what many of the Israelites ever thought it really meant. He says it's about the heart. So Jesus never dismissed the law. Now there's a, there's a fulfillment that's taking place there that's crucial to see. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus did not say, forget about the law. Don't worry about that. It's just all about grace now. But even more importantly for our purposes this morning as we come to our passage, it's crucial to see that even the Ten Commandments are not that way. Did you notice what the Ten Commandments begin with? Look at verse 2. God says, and here, this is a part of the Ten Commandments. We don't usually consider it, but it was a part. It was a lead-in. It was the basis of the Ten Commandments. Look at what God says in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now you shall have no other gods before me. Did you see what it begins with? The law... The Ten Commandments begin with the gospel. It begins with grace. Before God gives any command, he says, I need to remind you what's happened here. I am the Lord, your God. You belong to me. I am your God. And I rescued you from slavery in Egypt. I saved you. I delivered you. I brought you to myself. I did that on the basis of nothing in you. And we saw that over and over and over. They were helpless. They were hopeless. They were saved before they ever even got the law. God delivered and saved the Israelites and brought them to himself by pure grace. And at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God reminds his people of that. I've saved you. I've delivered you. You now belong to me. Now, here's how you're to live in relationship with me. You see that order? The order is always this. First comes grace, our response is law. First comes grace, free acceptance, free deliverance. Now, respond to me, obey me, follow me. It's always a response to his prior grace, never the basis of it. The basis of our relationship with God is always grace from first to last. It never can be earned. It never can be merited. It is entirely a basis of God's gracious choice to draw us to himself. But yet the law is a description of how to live in relationship with God. It's not how you get in, but after you've been brought in by grace, how then are we to live? That's what the law is. It's a pattern. It's a picture of how we are to follow Him and love Him. So that order is crucial. It's crucial to see that it was even the order in the Old Testament and even more so for us in Christ. It first comes grace then our response of obedience. If you reverse that order, the Christian life becomes burdensome, crushing. And let me tell you something. 
our hearts are hardwired to reverse that order because <clears throat> we want to earn. We want to deserve. We want to do it on our own. And so our hearts are always trying to reverse that order, and that, that is why each day we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. You've got to get the order. First comes grace. It's not up to me. It's not up to my works. Now I'm going to respond to that in obedience. The order is absolutely crucial. So the law was never, even in the Old Testament, a, a system of salvation, a way to enter relationship with God. So what is the law? What do we learn here in this picture and what does it mean for us? Well, this, the law is the way to love God in relationship with Him. It is the way, the instruction, the picture of how, how are we to express love in this covenant relationship. At another place in the Gospels, this teacher comes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? You know how Jesus responds? He, he was asked for one commandment. He gives him two. He says, The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is, is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's actually quoting the Old Testament. Jesus didn't just make that up on the spot. He's quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But what he's doing there is he's summarizing the law. He says right after that, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus was answering the question there by saying, in reality, all of the law, all of God's commands that were in the entire Bible are summed up in this. It's all a way to love God and to love your neighbor. And those two are inseparably connected. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor unless you first love God. So which comes first? It's like a photo finish. They go right alongside one another. But you see what Jesus is doing here? He's summarizing the Ten Commandments. You see, the first four commandments are about how we love God. How do I love God? Well, you love God by putting Him before everything else in your life. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It means that, that God comes first in your heart, that He is ultimate, that, the, that He comes before anything else in your life that you would look to for fulfillment and satisfaction and security and life. God is first in your heart. And then to worship Him in the proper way, that's the <clears throat> second commandment. The third commandment is, is honor and respect for His name and His character. And the fourth is the Sabbath day, an expression of trust that we would not work but rather depend upon Him for His provision. The first four commandments are how you love God. And then the, the second six, now it's interesting that four are specifically about how to love God and six are how to love other people. That's interesting, isn't it? If we were writing the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't put that in there because we naturally think about obedience as being a personal thing, you know, personal piety or, or personal devotion or reading my Bible or praying, which are wonderful to do. But it's just that we tend to see obedience and law as being very personal and isolated. But whenever we come to the commandments and we look into them, each one of those second six commandments are all about how to love other people. For instance, the commandment against lying is not just you shall not lie. It's that you shall not tell a lie about your neighbor bearing false testimony about them because of what it will do to them. You see, at the heart of the second six commandments is how we treat one another. One of my seminary professors used to 
used to use this phrase as a way to, to describe what is the essence of righteousness and wickedness. And he said, wickedness is this. Wickedness is disadvantaging the community for your own advantage. Righteousness, on the other hand, is disadvantaging yourself for the sake of the community. Think about that. That's profound. It's almost another way of saying the Ten Commandments. You see, it is deeply connected to how we treat other people. Wendell Berry put it this way. Do not do to those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. See, it's kind of assuming that we're all connected together. And so there is no isolated private sin. And the intention and the direction of the Ten Commandments is to drive us to a place where we are loving God and we are loving other people. You see, the commandments are a measure of our love for God and other people. See, I think most of us naturally think that we love God and that we love other people. The reality is is that most often we love God in general and we love people in general, but actual people in our life we despise. Is this true of your life? Oh, I just, those people in China, I just love them. But the people in my own house, I cannot tolerate. Right? If we were to go and ask someone, do you love God? 95%, if you believe in God, you're going to say, absolutely, I just love Him so much. But the measure of do you really love Him is, do you obey His commands? See, those are inseparably connected. Jesus put it this way, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He doesn't say, if you love me, then I want you to obey my commands, although he says that things like that in other places. But he says, if you love me, you will, as a natural consequence, obey my commands. Now, this is not all that different from most relationships in our life. If you love someone, you will seek to learn their law. We all have a law. We all have preferences. We all have things that matter very deeply to us. We all have things that whenever they're done, we feel, we deeply feel love. That's our law. Each of us has a law. Things that that you wish, things that you're passionate about. And see, whenever you fall in love with somebody, what do you try to do? You try to figure out what their law is. You study them. You look into them. What are those things that are meaningful to them? What are those things that they love? And then you seek to do that. What is it we say when you're in love? Your wish is my command, right? Your wish is my command. So, oh, you want me to to leave the toilet seat down? Your wish is my command. Flowers are meaningful to you. Your wish is my command. Telling you you're beautiful. These are all like from husband to wife, but it goes the other way too, right? Your husband has laws too. It works in friendships as well. You see, that's what love is. It's determining what is your law. What what moves you? What is most important to you? And love is therefore seeking to fulfill those things as an expression of love. That's what the Ten Commandments is. It's an expression of love to God. It's just that the commandments spell it out for you. What does He want? He makes it very clear. But there's a problem here. There's a problem. You know, I could end the sermon now, and I could say, all right, now go out and obey the Ten Commandments today. And I hope you will, by the way. But you would discover something. If you went about seeking to obey the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't make it out of the parking lot today.
I can't do this. In fact, the more seriously that you take God's law, the more deeply you will come to discover, I'm in trouble. I need a Savior. You see, if I'm going to take seriously the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, I'm going to begin to discover as I go about that, there are limitless things in my life that I run after for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy and security. You see, an idol, an other god, is not just an ancient statue or figurine that we might carve with our hands. It's anything in your life, any created thing that becomes more precious and satisfying to you than the living God. And when you begin to see the first commandment in that way, it is shattering for you because you see I'm hopelessly far away. And that's exactly what it means to put anything before Him in your heart. The Tenth Commandment, do not covet. Oh my gosh. You know what it means to covet? It's to want what someone else has. So don't go covet today. See how far you make it. Are you kidding me? Don't want what my neighbor has? That's all I do. In fact, if everyone in America today stopped coveting, the entire American economy would collapse instantaneously. Our culture is based upon coveting, right? Advertisers are saying, look what you don't have, but this person has and you need it. And we buy into it hook, line, and sinker. They know us more than we know us, right? As we come to the Ten Commandments, we begin to see, I'm hopelessly broken. And as C.S. Lewis once said, you don't know how bad you are till you try to be good. If you're not trying to keep the Ten Commandments, that's why you, you should. If you're not trying to keep them, you're going to think, I'm a pretty good person. I don't hurt anybody and I love God. Really? Look at the Ten Commandments. Do you love God? Do you hurt other people? You begin to discover the more that you try, I'm bad. I need a Savior. And this brings us to the gospel. That's the intent of the law, to drive you to Christ and to see, as Paul says in Romans 3, beautifully, for what the law was powerless to do. Powerless, not bad, good, beautiful, wonderful. The law is an expression of God's character and His beauty. The law is good, but it's powerless. It cannot change your heart. It cannot lead you into faithful relationship with God because the problem is us. The problem is our hearts. But what the law was powerless to do, get this, God did. That's the gospel. God did it. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man. He sent His Son to become like us in every way, completely in our likeness, a fully human being, but yet was without sin, in order to keep the law perfectly in our place and then to become a sin offering, as Paul says in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Do you get the logic of the gospel? God sent His Son to take our place in every way, to keep the law where we have not, and then to be condemned for the guilt of our sin, so that through trust and rest and faith in Him, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. If you are in union with Christ, do you know what's true of you? God looks upon you as a perfect law keeper. That's unbelievable. That is grace. God looks upon you and says you are righteous. 
as if we had perfectly kept the law. That's the gospel. So let's apply this. What does this mean Monday through Saturday? I think just this. The gospel drives true obedience. Now, obedience is the goal. Obedience is the goal of our salvation. God didn't save us just to save us and say, now, good luck. Go do whatever you want to do. Just like with the Israelites, he came and rescued them out of Egypt, and he didn't say, hey, that was wonderful, so go wherever you want to go. It's up to you now. No, he said, you are now my people. Let me show you how to live. The goal of our salvation is obedience, but the crucial thing to see is that only the gospel gives us the power to obey. Only it drives obedience. Only it compels our obedience. And how does it do that? Because only the gospel gives you the verdict before the performance. Think about that. When do we get the verdict before the performance? Never. When do you get the job? Only after you've nailed the interview, right? When do you make the team? Only after you've tried out and been good enough, right? When do you get the standing ovation? Only whenever the performance has been just right. When do you get the A? Only after you've aced the test. In every other area of our life, you only get the verdict after the performance. But what if you reverse the order? What if you came in for a job interview and the boss looked at you and said, guess what, before you say anything, you got the job. Now, tell me who you are. Tell me what your passions are. How would that make the interview a little different? What if you came into class and right at the very beginning the professor said, you got an A. That actually happened to me in seminary. Like, what? In seminary, I had a seminary class with a guy named Steve Brown. And we walk in the first day of class, he goes, listen, I need you to understand something. Everybody in here has an A. Okay? Now, open your heart and receive what I'm going to give to you. Soak up what I'm going to give you. Don't worry about grades. Don't worry about testing. Just take this in. And, of course, our reaction is like, there's got to be a catch to this. This is a big trick here. But it wasn't. What did he want? He wanted us to take in without worrying about, I've got to get the grade. He wanted us to embrace with, with our hearts what he was wanting to teach us. You see, in the gospel through faith and rest and the work of Christ in our place, God comes to you and says, you are righteous. You are accepted. You are holy and blameless in my sight. Verdict. Now obey me with your life. Serve me. Give your life away to me as a response because you belong to me now. That last week uh, we had a baseball game. I've been coaching uh, Wynn, my, my second son, in uh, Little League Baseball. And so last week we had a game, and uh, it was kind of getting late in the game, and, and, and we got done with the inning, and, and I wasn't keeping up with how many innings we had played. And the, the coach called me over, and we met, and he said, Hey, Coach, technically the game's over. You won. You already won, but the other team's not here, and nobody needs the field. you want to play another inning? I said, Absolutely. So I called our players over, and I said, Guys, listen, you just won the game. You know, they're cheering and everything. I said, now, do you want to play another inning? You want to bat again? They're like, yeah. You should have seen them play. They were free. There was no freedom of failure. 
There was no self-consciousness. There was no, how am I doing? There was no, I'm going to mess this up. They were free to give it their all, to go for it, to leave it all out on the field, and they did. That's how the gospel drives obedience, is it comes to you and says, you've already won. You've already won the medal of honor because you were in union with the risen one. You've already arrived. The way the Apostle Paul says it in the book of Philippians, let us live up performance to what we've already attained, verdict. Do you get that order? It's only when you get the order that you will be free to obey with fullness of heart. God says, you are righteous. You are my child. You can never fall out of my hands. Now give me every inch of your life. Serve your community. Give your life away. Do something that terrifies you because you can't fail. Go and take an orphan into your house. Go and give your, your money away. Give your life away. Serve. Give. Because the verdict's already in. So let me stop there for just a moment. We usually have a time at the end of our sermon where folks can share and respond and interact for just a few minutes. So as you see the passage and hear the gospel and what we see there, how does it strike you? How does that move in you? What does it stir in you? What's the reaction in your heart? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the balance of the gospel. You know, is that you're saved entirely by grace, but if you're saved, there will be an evidence of life that flows. The way Martin Luther put it, I think very helpfully, he says, we're saved by faith alone, period. But saving faith is never alone. It always ushers forth in a changed life. So, crucial. You, you mess the formula up, you reverse the order, you're in trouble. Of course, we do just about every day. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yes. 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 Yeah, and that's why we say so often the gospel is not just how you get in. You know, it's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z. You know, the gospel is not just that basic content that you have to believe in order to be saved and now it's up to you. Rather, the gospel is also how we grow, a never-ending rediscovery of the gospel in our heart. And so, therefore, we've got to preach it to ourselves and we've got to preach it to each other constantly. So we constantly need to remember the gospel. And it's why God started the Ten Commandments with the gospel. Yes. Yet, doesn't it, as you see the gospel, the freedom of it, the free grace in it, does it begin to kind of just move your heart in worship? You know, do you, do you feel maybe just a little glimmer of, oh, Jesus is beautiful. Does that begin to happen in you? That is what is called worship. Not, oh, singing. But it's when the heart is erupting with joy and thanksgiving 
And whenever you are seeing the beauty of Jesus, that produces joy. You don't have to say, now worship. See Jesus, you will worship. And we see him through a constant rediscovery of the law drives us to the gospel. See the fullness of the cross, worship. It's this never-ending dynamic happening in us. So me too. When I see it, it just makes me grateful and joyful. And that response is just worship. It's just natural. Anybody else? Okay, let me close this in prayer. Musicians, you can go ahead and come up. Lord Jesus, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would enable us to see the riches of the gospel. Would we be a people who take seriously the demands of your law? For Jesus did not lower the standard. He raised it even, but he fulfilled it. Would we see and allow the exposure of the law in our hearts so that it would drive us into the arms of Jesus constantly, continually, and so that the result would be lives of worship, because that's our goal. Lives poured out entirely for you and your glory. Come and do that in us as a church, and fill Trenton with joy and gladness. In Christ's name we pray.